book all together. So yeah, uh, turn with me to John 3. Uh, my name is Pete Starling. I'm, um, it's in the bulletin, so you don't even have to remember it. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Catherine. We, uh, our kids, uh, we have three kids, two boys and a girl, ages between 16 and almost 12. I round up and it drives my daughter crazy. I keep introducing her as 12 and she's like, I'm 11, dad. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have that much space in my brain. So almost 12 is pretty good. Um, but they are at church this morning. Our middle son is actually not feeling well. So we left him at home and hopefully he's doing all the things that a, a good young man should be doing, vacuuming, doing laundry. Otherwise, he's probably just sitting on the couch watching TV. But He's getting better. That's good. Uh, our oldest son, we actually um, ran in. We went to the farmer's market yesterday. Uh, our oldest son is 16, and we ran into one of his old Sunday school teachers. She was his fourth grade Sunday school teacher, and she recognized him, although he is much taller now. I don't know how she recognized him, but she ran into him. She said, hey, she introduced herself, and we talked to her for a minute. Uh, but funnily enough, my son is now teaching fourth grade Sunday school at our church at Inglewood. And so uh, we, got to we got to go back and talk to her and say, hey, the effort you put into my son, he's now putting into other kids. And so we really appreciate what you did for him. And it's just really, it makes a father's heart happy to be able to say, say that. Um, but yeah, so we live here in Rocky Mount, which is an interesting situation. Uh, I have gone to, I've gone to seminary. I have worked at churches, but right now me and my wife are uh, just faithfully attending a church. We're waiting to see if God opens up any more doors for us to serve. But I've been serving in this kind of capacity where I fill in for pastors from time to time. And uh, this is the first Sunday where I am preaching at a church in the same town I live, which scares me to death because I could actually run into you people now. Uh, it, it was fine when I preached bad sermons down in Rockingham. I'm never going to see those people at, at Harris Teeter. So uh, when you see me, if it's that bad, just go to a different aisle. I will, I'll pretend not to notice and we'll be fine. All right. Uh, but I wanted to get into John 3, and we'll go ahead and read the passage this morning, but I wanted to get into this because it is easily the most known verse in all of Christendom, right? Uh, John 3, 16. It is home to the most known verse in all of Christianity. If I just started saying the verse, I'm fairly certain 90% of you could finish it, right? For God so loved, and you could just go. What I've found is that John 3, the chapter, is way less known. We can center in on John 3.16, and I know that sermons can be preached on John 3.16 exclusively, just that verse, but the, the setting around that giant diamond of a verse is re rarely known or, or rarely is well studied. And so uh, I actually got to teach this to some middle school guys last Sunday, and uh, as your pastor asks, and, and it, this is a not ideal situation for me to be here with you this morning, knowing that your pastor's going through a lot of stuff and be, be in prayer for him. But as I was getting ready to come with you this morning to, to be with you, this passage just sat there and I was like, I, I, I love this passage and I would love to, to open it up with the church. And so that's where my heart is. So let's read it and then we'll jump into it. Now, we'll start in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your bringing your church together. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the community that we can have as we come and celebrate our our, our identity in you. God, now we come and we ask something supernatural. God, that you will take these words and make them come alive in us. So deep seeds of your word so that we see it and we experience it. And Holy Spirit, you use it to change us. Holy Spirit, we beg you that in this time that you come and you take the words of God that we have here. And God, you break us with the gospel. God, that you change us by the gospel. That you challenge us with the gospel, and send us out new people. We pray these things in the awesome name of Jesus Christ. Amen. John 3.16 is easily the center point of of a lot of conversation that we can have. If we were witnessing, it's a great place to start. If we wanted to talk about theology, there's so much that we could start there and and move off into great aspects of theology. Uh, There are plenty of quotes about how important John 3.16. Martin Luther said it's the, the gospel in, in, in minutia. It's, it's, uh, one commentator said it's the hub uh, that all of theology, all great theology, pours into this hub, and from it is a, a centerpiece of Christian belief and Christian just exuberance. One, one uh, writer, I think it's Max Licato, said it's just like a parade of joy. All of these things are true, but It's so rare that we really think about who they were spoken to or in what setting John gives us uh, more more accurately. Uh, John 3.16 comes at the end of a conversation that Jesus has with this man named Nicodemus at night. I was asked to give a sermon title to this, so I called it Nick at Night. I feel like that's had to have been done before, uh, but I just went with it. So I covered my bases. But I want you to see, if you fall asleep, in the next five seconds. I want you to know exactly what this sermon's about so that if your pastor tests you next week, you can pass the pop quiz. This is what the sermon is about. The gospel must wreck you before it can rebirth you. That's not really good English, but you're with me, right? The gospel must wreck you before it can rebirth you. Now, I'm specifically using that word rebirth. I could go with a bunch of different words, but because it's here, it's really the center point of a lot of what um, 
we go back to as we talk about Christianity. Uh, even in our modern culture, there's kind of a, a difference between um, Christians who are called uh, evangelical. And are you one of those evangelicals? Or are you one of those born again kind? Have y'all heard that kind of saying? So this is really the centerpiece of, of even that language, that there's something about this passage that people still talk about, that people still judge us on, that people still see as distinctive. So this is so important. But as we jump in, I really want you to see it fully in context. I want you to understand John. I want you to understand John 2, 3. I want you to understand the whole setting of this diamond of a verse so that as you understand it, maybe it comes to mean something new and different in your life because it absolutely hits Nicodemus differently. Uh, John 2 is, the, is two miracles or, or two big moments of Jesus' early ministry. It's the miracle of the, the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine, right? And so Jesus goes to this wedding wedding feast. He is not, he is a guest with some of his disciples. His mother comes to him and he ultimately, uh, water is turned to wine. There is no magic trick. There is no giant moment where Jesus jumps on a stage, waves a wand and says, presto, now you have water into wine. That is not the point of Cana. It is not to build followers. It is to build faith in his already followers, right? People can leave that, that wedding feast at Cana without knowing that Jesus did anything. That wasn't the point at the wedding feast in, in, in uh, John chapter 2. The second part of John chapter 2 is, uh, you, you see it there starting in verse 13, if you want to follow with me. The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this will be the first cleansing of the temple that Jesus does in his ministry. It seems likely that he does it twice uh, based on the other gospels. Um, and while I say that, the other Gospels, I kind of want to touch on this. I want you to see something about the Gospels. We have four Gospels. We have four stories of Jesus' ministry and life. And there's a reason that we have those four. Those four have unique natures all to themselves. The, the Gospels do not tell the same story the same way for a reason. Because they're written to different audiences. They're written for different purposes. Uh, Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. He is explaining that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. He is showing Jewish Jewish um, people of the first century. This is the guy we've been waiting for. And so he references Old Testament text after Old Testament text. That is the point of Matthew. They all are presenting the same story in very different ways, right? And so Mark, it is written to be like the man on the street. Mark is almost as if you were talking to a guy in a in the 15 minutes he had after work uh, in Rome. And it is Mark telling the story as, as given to him by Peter, most likely from history. And so Mark is just immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. So you have a, a man on the street kind of take on Jesus. Luke is the theologian. He's probably the most learned of the writers that we have of the Gospels. He is a, he is a doctor. He is, he is setting down a standard history almost as if it's to be used in a, a court of law. He's saying, here's exhibit A, Luke, here's exhibit B, Acts. And he is bounding those two things together to tell the story of Jesus as if it was going to be read aloud on record, right? So Luke is different. Now, John comes way later in the writing of these gospels. Most likely the, the, the first three gospels come before AD 70. So about the time of the, just as a marker for history, about the time of the temple destruction, it's most likely that the other gospels are all written before uh, the year 70 AD. 
John is more likely to be written closer to 90 to 100. He is writing to a church established. He is writing to Christians who have been doing this for a while, who have been planning churches. He is writing the story of Jesus as an eyewitness. He'll, he'll go back to his eyewitness a lot. But he is an eyewitness writing later to a church that has started to ask other questions. Does that make sense? Uh, if, you, if you're a part of a movement, that movement has certain questions that it has to ask right away. How are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? But as the movement gets a little bit older, you have different questions. How are we going to move to different cities? How are we going to, how are we going to govern our, our thing while it's getting bigger? How are we going to bring in new members? All of that. And so I want you to see that John is answering totally different questions because he's writing much, much later. He's writing after the church is separating very starkly from its Jewish heritage. He is writing to a church that has gone global after the missions, after the mission journeys of Paul. He's writing to a totally different audience, a bigger audience. And you can even see that in the way he describes it, the Passover of the Jews. If he's writing to the Jewish people, he doesn't have to describe what the Passover is. He doesn't have to give much background. But as he's writing to the world audience of non-Jewish believers all across the globe, he's starting to show Jesus in, in a different light than the other gospels that they would have already had. And so he says, he's going up to this festival that the Jewish people celebrated in Jerusalem. Every year, Jewish followers, faithful Jews, would come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and they would make a sacrifice. And this town, this fairly large town anyway, would double, triple in size. There would be millions of followers, or, or millions of Jewish um, faithful coming to Jerusalem every year. This would have been packed. And so as Jesus comes into this town, this incredible, I mean, we're talking Super Bowl-level people coming to a town, right? And guess where they're all coming to town? Guess where they're all going? To the temple. And so Jesus walks into this temple and he sees what's going on and he's not having any of it. He's turning over tables. He's pushing people around. He's getting, he's trying to set the temple right. This is a big moment in Jesus's ministry because Jesus is trying to show that he is not about the big, he's shown at, at Cana, he's not about the big show. He didn't make a big deal about turning water into wine. He comes to the temple and he's saying, I'm not about this. I'm not about religiosity. I'm not about money-making schemes. I'm about God being glorified. I'm about God being honored the way he's supposed to be honored. And so then, by the end of chapter 2, after he's done all of this, I want you to see what it says at the end of chapter 2. This is going to be really important for the, the conversation that he has with Nicodemus. So jump down with me in 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, so this is the same time, the same week, uh, the Passover celebration was, uh, it was a one-night feast, there was a sacrifice, there was a meal, but there was a whole week-long celebration of everything that was going on. During the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So Jesus was in Jerusalem with millions of Jews come, come to see, uh, or come to celebrate the Passover, but they were seeing Jesus. They were experiencing Jesus. Many people were coming to see this, this man as significant. And many people, it says, were believing in him because of the signs. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not interesting. That's actually the same word, believing. Jesus for his part was not believing them, for he knew all men. You're going to want to 
catch this in verse 25, because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So just hold on the, on, on the back burner of your mind that idea that Jesus did not need any testimony. So what that's kind of getting at is as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, as he came into the temple, as he cleared the temple, as he's showing exactly who he is to the entire Jewish population that is, has come to this building to worship God, to, to make their sacrifice, as Jesus is doing that, the one thing that he is not doing is he is not going to the, the most learned men of Jerusalem. He is not going to the, the power makers of Jerusalem. He is not going to the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the scribes or anybody. He is not going there to, to build a following. He is not going there to make a name for himself. Does that make sense? And just in our modern day, if you wanted to run for office, if you wanted to run, say, for a senate or a president or something at that level, what would you do? You would need to meet with certain donors, right? You would need to meet with certain power makers. You would need to go to the powerful elite and they would say, all right, I don't mind giving you money, but how do you feel about this? What is your stance on this? And they would kind of vet him, right? Because they don't want to give money to somebody who could never win. And that's part of what happens in this day. The people who want to make a big name for themselves, small market preachers who might come from, from a, a Nazareth, who might come from the area of Galilee, they might come to Jerusalem to try to get a following, to try to make a name for themselves, to try to impress people. But one thing that they would definitely do is they would go seek out the most powerful Pharisees and say, hey, this is what I believe. Could you back me? Could you tell people to follow me? Or maybe the Sadducees, if they're of that ilk. And they would say, well, yeah, this is what we believe about this, and, and I just wanted to, you to be able to tell people, yeah, come follow this guy. He, he knows what he's talking about. So this is the way that you build a name for yourself. And Jesus comes to town, and the first thing that we see him do in John's gospel is he wrecks. He causes chaos. He says, you're taking my temple, and you're turning into something that's not, and we're not going to do that. And when it comes time for him to teach, he teaches and he's got the ear of the people and he's doing certain signs. Most likely he's healing, he's, he's casting out demons. He's doing something in Jerusalem during this feast that we don't necessarily have written down in the gospels, but we have here in John. And John's the one that will tell us, if I wrote down everything Jesus ever did, it would take books on books. So I'm not telling you everything, but right here, there is a cacophony of things that Jesus is doing. He is making so much noise that the people are noticing. And not just the people, but the Pharisees, the leaders. That's where we come in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now there's more there than we could begin to understand. And I want you to kind of see this entire conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus through the light of what we're hearing about Nicodemus. This conversation does not happen with anyone else. Does that make sense? This conversation does not happen with the woman at the well. This conversation does not happen with the, the, the ten lepers that he heals and the one comes back. This conversation is centered on who Nicodemus is. And so we need to understand a little bit more about Nicodemus for us to really get the context of this conversation that Jesus has with him. We need to understand because John 3.16 is in the conversation or, or is set in the conversation of Nicodemus. And so it's important that we understand that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. The ruler of the Jews is probably the most easy to explain, so I'll go with that one first. The ruler of the Jews meant that Nicodemus was 
of the, the 70 most powerful men in the, in the life of a modern Jew, or a modern, in the life of, a, of one of his contemporary Jews. He was of the Sanhedrin, a, a thing that we see a little bit named later in Acts. But the Sanhedrin were 70 Jewish men who were the heads of their family, who were the most powerful men in the life of Jews. So they didn't necessarily have all the power and authority of, say, a, gover, a government official, but they had all the power that they could have as being a Jewish person in the first century. They were under the Romans, but they had they went right up to that lip. Does that make sense? So they were as powerful as a Jewish person could be without going to Rome, and so they could make decisions about what the what the govern or, or how uh, the the life of a Jew was to be lived. And so this man came to Jesus with power. He came to Jesus with prestige. He came to Jesus with everything that a Jew at that time would think is important. When we read that he's a Pharisee, that's a, that's a religious term. So as a Pharisee, it meant that he was one of the most religious kind of people that you could meet. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two big parties in the Sanhedrin. It's almost like it was a Republican-Democrat thing, right? They, they were at each other, they didn't like each other, and they, they fought a lot. Uh, but they, they had very different beliefs. The Pharisees were all about law. Pharisees loved the law. And so what they did was they took the law of God and they would make extra laws on top of that law. And they would write down these, these laws by the, the most important teachers and they would say these laws on top of the law are what you have to follow so that you can be a good Jewish person. Does that make sense? You with me? You ever been around people who have rules on top of rules? My kids are really good about this. There's a, there's a government system in my family about who sits in the front seat. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. If you have three kids and only one front seat, you have to have rules. And my kids have rules about who sit, whose week it is to sit in the front seat. If that person's not in the car, whose week it is then to sit in the, they're like a vice president of the front seat. And we have, I mean, it goes. And we have rules about who cleans bathrooms. I mean, we have rules on top of rules. But this is about rules on top of rules about how to be okay with God. And so the Pharisees would take, say, a rule like that's given in Scripture, uh, keep the Sabbath, right? Keep the Sabbath. We can all agree that is a scriptural rule. Everybody good with that? So as all Jewish people would, would say, we should keep the Sabbath because that's the law of God. Now the Pharisees would come and say, well, that's kind of vague. Maybe we need some rules on top of keep the Sabbath. Maybe we need to say, keep the Sabbath by not walking more than 100 feet. Well, where did they get 100 feet? I don't know. But they had, they had teachers that would teach that if you walk 101 feet, you have broken the law, you're, you're wrong with God. And you can't do work on the Sabbath. That's the law. You can't do work. And so if they have rules like this, if you tie a knot, that's akin to, to work. So if you go out to the well to pull water out of the well and there, the bucket had come loose, you are not allowed to tie that bucket to that rope to get water. That is work and you are wrong with God if you do it. But good rule keepers always have a big butt, right? That's funny. Y'all can say uh, a woman who's getting dressed has to tie a sash on her, her garments. That's not, that's not work. That is just getting dressed. So for a Pharisee to go to the bucket and tie the bucket to the rope, that's work. But if a Pharisee goes out to the same well, the same bucket, not tied, and he takes a scarf from a woman's garment and ties it to the, to the well, the bucket to the well that way, not work. So, do you think you would need a master level degree in pharisaical idea, ideology to be able to keep up with that? So, 
guess what? If you're a Pharisee, guess what you do? You set up shop in any town. You say, I'm a Pharisee. I got the, I got the sign off. I got a certificate from the Pharisees in Jerusalem. You come to me with any questions. I'll get you straight for a price. You come ask me. I'll tell you what's work, what's not work. Yeah, you come to me. I'm, I am your spiritual leader. I am the voice of God for you. So is this man who is a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who is a ruler over all Jews, what he comes to Jesus with is a, a, a law-based system that you can see who is good and who is right because of their, their following the law. You can see by what they wear, by what they do. You can see who's part of God's kingdom. Some Pharisees, and this may be Nicodemus's point of view based on the conversation we have, some Pharisees would believe that all Jews are part of the kingdom of God. All Jews, except for those who are blatantly disregarding God's law. They, they even had an, a tradition that Abraham sits at the gates of hell, and he, any, any wayward Jew who got lost along the way to the path to heaven, he would grab them and, and move them to the right kingdom, right? So the Pharisees likely believe that you have to keep the law that you can see who's a good Jew, who you can see on the face of it, just by what you look like, what you do, who's in the kingdom. And there is no way a born Jew would ever, outside of just gross heresy, be cast out of the kingdom. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, I want you to, I want you to consider in your mind that Nicodemus comes as the superior person and, G, and he expects Jesus to be the inferior person. Have you ever been in a room with someone who had power? Have you ever been in a room with someone who's important? Does that make sense? If the president walks in here, would we treat him differently than if just somebody else walks in here? Well, we shouldn't, but do we tend to? If the president's coming over to my house this afternoon, am I cleaning up a little bit differently? Am I putting out the good china? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? There's a difference in, in Nicodemus's mind that he is so far above Jesus when he comes to sit down with Jesus, that he is the man in power, that Jesus should be coming to him. A lot of ink is spilled over the fact that Nicodemus came at night. A lot of ink is spilled. And it could be a, it could be a central thing because John really likes to play with light and dark, but I want you to see something that is just absolutely on the face of it in these words. The fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and not the other way around, is probably the most important words you see there. Nicodemus is so important in his mind that he is coming to Jesus. He's like, he even says it. He comes to this man by night and he said to him, Rabbi, this is verse 2, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There's going to be a lot of wordplay in here. And I want you to, uh, if, you, if you take notes, if you write in your Bible, the, the, there's going to be a lot of back and forth here. And I want you to kind of see what's going on. Um, one thing that you see here is that Nicodemus is coming to this guy. He's coming from a position of power. He's coming as the superior to Jesus' inferior. And he says, Jesus, we see, you do, we see what you're doing. You got a good thing going on, Jesus. I think that something that's going on here is Nicodemus is coming to see if Jesus wants to join up with the Pharisees. Because this is, this is kind of in, in, the, in, the, 
in the in-between verses, but the Sadducees ran, the, the other group in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees ran the temple. They were the, the, the high priestly family. They were in charge of the temple. They were making money off the temple. And so when Jesus comes and starts flipping over tables and telling the Sadducees, you're doing a bad job of worshiping God, guess who's on board with that? Guess who loves that? The Pharisees are eating that up. Look at this guy. He's making this, the Sadducees look like idiots. I like him. And then he's starting to build a following, he's teaching, he's doing signs, and these Pharisees are like, we got to get this guy on board. He could be part of the Sanhedrin one day, he could be one of us, he could be a big deal if I go to him. And, and so it seems like as he's going to him, he doesn't say, I see what you're doing, he says, we see what you're doing. So it's almost like he, Nicodemus, one of the most powerful men, one of the most respected men in the entire country, is going to fill out Jesus if he wants to be a Pharisee. You kind of see what I'm saying? Some of the wordplay that goes on here, I really want you to get this, uh, in that we, we know that you have come to, from God. That's my, my translation, verse 2. Rabbi, we know you have come from God. That, that word know has in it, it's kind of at its base, we see what you're doing, or we know by, by seeing what you're doing. And, and we use this language all the time, right? Uh, I, if, if one of my kids is going to do something wrong and I happen to catch him, I could just say, I see what you're doing. You know what I mean? And he's, he, he's, he knows, that means I know what you're about to do and you're going to get... So this, this language here is Jesus, and this is going to be really important. His first words to Jesus are, we see that you have come from God as a teacher. We see that you're a big deal. We see that you have, you have potential, Jesus. You are speaking God's word. You're, you're making the Sadducees mad. We like you. We have a, we have a spot for you. We want to... We wanna, we want to get you uh, going. We want to get you a following. We want to make you a big deal. You be part of the Sanhedrin. We could run the place with your help. We see that you have potential, Jesus. For no one can do these things unless God is with him. Now, right now, Nicodemus is at his highest point in this entire conversation. Because he's in charge of this conversation. We see you're a big deal. We know that you're from God. I mean... You're, you're one of the prophets. You're one of these guys who comes and teaches us new stuff about God. And like us, we can teach you all the Pharisee ways. We can teach you all the rules that we have. And we can make you a great teacher of Israel. This is the zenith of Zacchaeus's, or yeah, of, I'm sorry, Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus. Because Jesus is about to throw him the biggest roadblock that he's ever seen in his entire life. Jesus turns to him and says, Amen, amen, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to make a big deal out of Jesus. Jesus stops him. And I would love to see Jesus' face when he says this. When we get to heaven, I would love to record or see the VCR tape on this, right? Is it angry? Is it with pity? Is it with love? He looks at Nicodemus, a religious. I mean, this is the height of what worldly good can be. He is rich. He is famous. We know he's rich by the end of the gospel in the gift that he gives for Jesus' body to be, to be wrapped in. He is rich. He is famous. He is well-respected. He is as religious as you could be. He is the moral, religious, economical, political zenith of human attainment. He is better than all of us put together in this room. I just guarantee it. 
And Jesus looks at this man who has everything that the world tells you you could want. And he says, unless you are born again, unless, in, in different translations here, unless you are born from above, unless you will not see the kingdom of God. Now, I told you, Nicodemus came as the superior in this conversation. Nicodemus was just at the zenith of his. Jesus just told him, you don't have a part of the kingdom. You're missing something, Nicodemus. Nicodemus looks at his resume and said, I don't, I don't see it. Pharisee, Sanhedrin, rich, powerful, my resume's pretty good, Jesus. I'm definitely part of the kingdom. Jewish leader. If only 70 Jews got into the kingdom, guess what? By all logical standards, Nicodemus is in the, is in the front rows. Nicodemus is thinking but when he starts this conversation, if heaven, if the kingdom starts tonight, I'm in the orchestra section. And Jesus literally says, there is something that is missing from your resume, Nicodemus. There is something that you do not have. You are not right now part of the kingdom. Not only are you not part of it, you came talking about what you can see. You will not see the kingdom based on your resume right now. You have to be born again. Nicodemus just got challenged. He came here to be just lauded with praise. Nicodemus, oh my gosh, it is such a big deal that you came. I'm so glad to see you. You're an important dude. I cannot, I, I cannot tell you how excited. Hey guys, get the good coffee out, get the good tea, get the good desserts. We got Nicodemus here. We're going to make a big deal about him. But Jesus' first words to him are to say, you don't have what you think you have. You are not who you think you are. Let that sit. Because the gospel has to wreck you before it can rebirth you. You have to be told, absolutely, it does, not matter if you, or it, it does not matter if you were a pastor, if you are a deacon, if you play the piano. It does not matter anything that you have on your resume. At some point, the gospel has to hit you with this deep and abiding truth. Unless you are born again, unless you are completely outside of yourself changed. There is not enough money that you can gather. There is not enough religious services you can do. There is nothing that you can bring to this table unless you are ripped to the very bottom, unless you are wrecked by the gospel. You will not see the kingdom. Nicodemus. Pharisees, I'll just tell you about this. Pharisees love a good debate. Pharisees love to get into it. Well, I say you have to do, you can't walk a hundred steps on the Sabbath. Well, why a hundred? Well, this is what I think about a hundred. And so they'll just go round and round. They will spend days talking about religion. And so G Nicodemus loves this. All right, Jesus, you're hitting me with, I don't have part of the kingdom. What are you talking about born again? This is, this is Nicodemus's response in verse four. How can a man who is old like I am be born again? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? There's, there's conversation about what the, the idea of rebirth would have meant to first century Jewish Pharisees, what it would have meant in, in first century in general. But I want you to see, we absolutely know what Nicodemus came away with in Jesus' response to him, right? What is, what is Nicodemus' response? 
he goes physical. Does that make sense? He said, I am a grown man, and my mother is not going to allow me to go back into her womb. Rebirth is not an option for this grown man. Does that make sense? Y'all see, he goes physical. So Nicodemus is pushing back. But I want you to see what he's not doing. This is really, this is really good. Nicodemus could, what, what would be your response if you were the biggest deal on earth? If you were like super rich, super important, super popular, you had everything and somebody told you no, what would be your first response? Well, you're fired. Well, you're done. You'll never make a living out of this again. Nicodemus' response is really interesting because he doesn't get angry. He doesn't lash out at Jesus. He, he asks an honest question. You said rebirth. I don't understand rebirth. You help me understand that. Jesus says, Truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus' pushback was, I can't enter my mother's womb, and Jesus' pushback includes, you cannot enter the kingdom, right? They're having a playful conversation. They're going back and forth. They're having a tit-for-tat here. And, and Nicodemus' idea was, I can't physically be reborn, can I? And Jesus comes back to him and says, unless you're born of, the, there's a lot of conversation around flesh and spirit, or, or I'm sorry, water and spirit here. There's a lot of conversation. Our heads could go a, a number of different ways. I think I believe, and I am not in the majority necessarily on this, so I want you to know this. This is your pastor trying to understand this passage. Nicodemus went back to Jesus with a physical request. I cannot be reborn from my mother. Jesus says, you must be born of water and spirit. There's a big conversation about this. I want you to know where I come down on this. I believe what, what Jesus' response is saying is, you have to be born of your mother once, yes. But now you need a second birth. You need a birth that is not physical, that is not related to your mother. You need a birth of spirit. Uh, just something to note, the is not located in this verse in the Greek. It is not necessarily the spirit. It is supplied by, the, as we translate, we try to understand what's going on there. So it is not necessarily that you are born of water and the spirit, but it is probably very clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we get into a lot of spirit talk in just a second. So I want you to see this. So Jesus' response, Nicodemus comes back and says, what you say is impossible. I cannot be reborn from my mom. Jesus' response to that is, we're not talking about your mom right now. We're talking about you. We're not talking about where you come from. We're not talking about what family you have. We're not talking about your Jewish identity. We are talking about something completely outside of all of that. We are talking about a rebirth of the Spirit. You need something that is not on a physical resume. You need something that you cannot attain. You need something completely outside yourself. If you're a good rule keeper, if you're a super religious person who loves to keep rules and you have rules on top of rules, do you need something outside of yourself to be righteous? If your entire relationship with God is, I go to church every Sunday. I give 10%. I help, I help when I can. I work with the kids. I, I'm a deacon. If your entire resume is built on what you do and the rules that you keep, do you need outside help to make you right? Not in your mind. You definitely think, 
I'm okay because I've kept all the rules. I'm okay because I've done all the things. I am okay with God because I have rules on top of rules. I would never come close to breaking one of God's rules. And here's this Galilean preacher man who comes from backwater country, and he's telling me that I don't have part of the kingdom? He's telling me that what I've done is not enough? He's telling me that I need something that I could never add on my own? Well, that's rich. Verse 6, that which is of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. This is why I read verse 5 the way I do, because Jesus' next verse is very much flesh and spirit, right? He separates the the earthly from the spiritual. He says, you must be born of of water and spirit. I, I believe his next verse really clarifies that. You're born of a Jewish mom, and so you're Jewish. But that's not you being part of the spirit. That's not you being part of the kingdom. Those two things for Jesus from this moment as he's challenging Nicodemus are incredibly separate. Nicodemus says, I'm part of the kingdom because I'm a Jew. And Jesus is saying, flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. What are you? It does not matter who your mom was. It does not matter who your dad was. It does not matter what position you hold. Who are you? Spiritually, who are you? You're either a dead man or you're born of the spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, every, every, every verse in, or every time you see wind in here, it is the exact same word as spirit. So the, the wind and spirit are the exact same word. And Jesus, what he's doing here, it's interesting. So, so go with me in verse 8. The wind spirit blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound, the voice, that's the same word, of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit wind. You see that? You see how I'm reading that? I want you to see that Jesus is putting these two things on top of each other. And he's saying, hey, Nicodemus, you're a genius. You know all these rules. Tell me where the wind comes from. Nicodemus is like, what? What are you talking about? Where the wind comes from? Yeah, just tell me where the wind comes from. Where's the wind going? I don't. Jesus, what are you talking about? I have no idea. And Jesus is getting to the point here with him. He's saying, you don't understand everything yet, Nicodemus. And here's something you don't understand. The Spirit works differently than you expect. For a good Pharisee leader, who's going to the kingdom? Every Jewish person, right? Y'all with me? Who's going to the kingdom as a Pharisee? Every good Jewish person keeping the rules, keeping the law, those are the the, the people going to the kingdom. And Jesus says, "Here's, here's the truth about the Spirit. You don't see it. You don't see it coming. You don't know where it came from. You don't know, you don't know who's got it. It's not on the outside, Nicodemus. You want to follow all these rules. You want to wear all these clothes. You want to wear, you want to go to all these important feasts, and you want to do everything that you say is important, but that's not the way the Spirit works. The Spirit keeps moving, keeps nudging, keeps working behind the scenes when you go home from church. The Spirit is not the same thing as religion. And he's talking to a religious man, and he's saying, your religion is not enough. Nicodemus said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Nicodemus I told you a minute ago at the beginning of this conversation, he was at the top of the the, the spectrum. He was was on fire. 
He was the biggest deal in the room. And by this verse, he says to Jesus, I don't understand what you're talking about. Notice he does not say, I don't need this. I'm, I'm a big deal. I'm leaving now. Good luck. Good luck with your new message. I don't see it, I don't see it taking off. He literally, as the mo- one of the most important people in, in Israel, he says, how? how? What? what? Tell me more. And Jesus gives his next, truly, truly. Jesus gives his next explanation of all these things. And he says to him, you came to me a teacher of Israel. You came to me as the most, one of the most important people that I could meet in Jerusalem. You came to me saying, we know, we see that you are from God. Jesus turns his words around on him in verse 11. I say to you, verily, verily, amen, amen. We speak of what we know. Remember, Nicodemus' first words. We know you're from God. We see you're from God. And he says here, we, you came to me, we know? We know that I'm from God? He's turning his words on him. We speak of what we know. You came talking to me. This is the, one of the more confusing verses in this chapter because there's no reason for Jesus to use the we here. There's a lot of conversation about why does Jesus go into this, this we language. He's either talking about him and the Bible, him and the, the uh, Holy Spirit, because he's just talked about the Spirit, him and the Godhead. There's a lot of conversation about what he's saying, but if you really think about it, everything that Jesus says in this verse is turning the tables on, on Nicodemus. Nicodemus came saying, we see that you're from God, and Jesus says, Remember, you started this conversation. We see with our eyes what, what we know. We testify of what we've seen. Remember at the end of chapter 2, who did Jesus go to for testimony? Who did Jesus look for, for for backing? Who did he try to sign on to his cause? No one. You do not accept our testimony. These are all truths that we've already seen in this passage. Jesus lays this man out. I've told you and you do not believe, verse 12. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended the Son of Man, that's me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, me, I must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, in me, will have eternal life. I want you to see, and I'm not going to pour out these other verses, but I want you to see something. This conversation started with a religious, powerful, significant man coming in his, writ, in, his, in his extravagance in all that he was, and he laid his resume out in front of Jesus, and he said to Jesus, I can make you a big deal. And Jesus slid his resume back to him, and he said, I could make you a spiritual baby. I could open up your eyes for the very first time. I could make you part of the kingdom. Through me. Not more religion, not more laws, not more anything, but you can give all of that up, Nicodemus. And you can follow me to have eternal life, to have something you've never tasted, something you do not know, something you cannot obtain. I am the offer, Nicodemus. So he shreds Nicodemus's resume right in front of him, and he says, Now it's me. Here's my resume. I am the Son of Man. I am going to die for you. I am the only way in. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with me. I know that 
I know that this situation is not perfect. I know that I'm not the, your normal pastor, and I know that I don't know your hearts. But here's something I know about each and every person in this room. We need to be broken by the gospel. We need to be broken by the gospel so that we have eternal life. We need to be broken of all of our holding on to the past, all of our resume building. We need to be broken of that. We need to be wrecked by the gospel until we come to understand that it is Christ alone that we depend on, that it is belief in him alone that we see as our salvation. And we need that to come as babies to the kingdom. But there is a good chance that some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. You've made that decision. You've been broken by the gospel at salvation. You are a, a, a follower, a lover of God. But can I be really honest with you? The gospel never stops wrecking when it starts. There's a danger for good church people to come to a good church service every week to get, the, to get the, the word of God every week to come to this and to hear it and to go home and to be building resumes again. Well, I'm a pastor, I'm a deacon, I'm a Sunday school teacher, I, I have all these things and I'm a good person, I do the good things, I, I try to pay my taxes, I do all these things and we try to build resumes again, but we have to consistently and constantly be wrecked by the gospel. If we come in here this morning and we are not wrecked by the fact that we have nothing to bring, that we have still nothing to bring but obedience, but faith, but, but doing the bidding of the Holy Spirit as he calls us, we're not living in the gospel. We're not exalting the gospel. We're not worshiping from the center of the gospel. My, my brother talked about sometimes we just sing songs. How different are the songs we sing when we have practiced the gospel in our own hearts, when we have, when we have thought the gospel through in our own minds, and as we sing these songs, set my feet on higher ground, on ground not built on earthly things, but on heavenly things. We have to over and over be wrecked by the gospel. In whatever imperfect way I've done this this morning, I hope that I put in front of your heart a challenge to see the gospel, to see the resume building and all the self-righteousness as what it is, as garbage, as something to be thrown out, but to depend fully on who Jesus is, to trust solely in him for our being, our spiritual identity, everything that we have. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters, as we come to your word, as we hear from you, that you will challenge our hearts, that you will change us based on this. God, please help us to put our resumes on the table so that you can put your, so that you can put your blood and cover those. We have nothing to bring. Only to your cross we cling. God, I pray that you will change us now in the name of the in the awesome name of Jesus Christ our lord amen i believe we have a break and then we get back together